Bristol Business School and Bristol Law School at UE Bristol bring you the Future Impact podcast series. In this series, we're delving into the topics that you want to discuss, from life-changing research and cutting-edge technology to brand new ways of thinking. We will be calling on UE Bristol academics and real-world practitioners to help us get the answers and share their industry knowledge and insights. Welcome to this edition of the Future Impact Podcasts, which is on cryptocurrency and cybercrime. And we're also joined today by a UE alumni from the Seychelles who'll be offering an international perspective on uh, some of our topics. So I'm going to hand over to Dr. Henry Hillman to introduce himself. Uh, my name is Dr. Henry Hillman. Um, I am a recent uh, PhD um, graduate from UWE, uh, a senior lecturer as well. I focused on uh, cryptocurrencies uh, and financial crime. So my thesis looked at how uh, anti-money laundering laws are being adapted to address the risks posed by cryptocurrencies. Thanks, Henry. And we're also joined by uh, Dr. Phil Legg from UWE. Hello, Dr. Phil Legg, Associate Professor in Cybersecurity and I'm the Programme Leader for the MSc Cybersecurity at UWE. So my interests in research predominantly sit around insider threat detection, machine learning, data visualisation, how we can make use of data analytics to better understand what are the, the threats in terms of cybersecurity and the threats in terms of you know, those criminals who might be looking to exploit modern technology systems. Thanks, Phil. And our UE alumni joining us is Angelique Juliet. Hi. Um, so as Rachel has said, I am an ex-UE alumni. I did my BPTC with UE and I am currently doing my pupil pupillage with um, a chambers locally here. One of my main areas of interest and practice will be criminal defense. And one of these areas include financial crimes. And this is what has piqued my interest um, in participating in uh, this podcast. But also I am um, the global advisor and head of social media with Mazeltov Innovation and Justice, which is partnered with UE to bring um, forward young professionals perspective on key issues like financial crime. Angelique, thank you so much. And it's great to have you all here with us today. And for those of us who don't know a huge amount about this, can you explain what is meant by cryptocurrency? And I think Henry, if you'd be happy to take that. Yes, uh, I'll do my best to try and explain cryptocurrencies. Um, Essentially, a cryptocurrency is a digital representation of value. Um, It differs from what we call FIAT currencies, which are traditional money, pounds, dollars, euros, um, in that it's got no central authority that um, backs the currency up or therefore controls its um, production or uh, and supply, uh, no control of interest rates as well. So we have the Bank of England, which controls the pound, for example. So the difference there is that it's an entirely digital representation of value. I think a good way of understanding it is to identify the three key differences around cryptocurrencies to uh, fiat money. So firstly, through transactions. So transactions in cryptocurrencies are undertaken through public-private key cryptography. And what that means is you'll send uh, your cryptocurrency to someone's public key. So if I was sending it to Phil, for example, I'd know his public key, which wouldn't be Phil Leg, it would be a string of characters. Um, I'd send that cryptocurrency to Phil, and Phil could access that using his private key. So it's something that the transactions are undertaken uh, in um, sort of in the open, uh, but only the recipient can access the funds. The second feature of cryptocurrencies is their production, which is predominantly through a process called mining. Now, this isn't true of all cryptocurrencies, but most cryptocurrencies involve a mining process. And the mining process is um, centered around the miners, the nodes in the network, seeking to find the answer to a difficult proof of work. And the aim of this is that they are, their computer will um, fire lots of answers to this um, to the mining algorithm to find the proof of work. Um, and ideally, then, once they find that correct answer to the, to the algorithm, the uh, reward is issued to that particular miner. So every miner in the system is constantly trying to find the, the current answer um, to the proof of work uh, problem. When, they, when the first miner finds that, they get the reward. The bitcoins are in the one case of Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency um, is issued to that miner and everyone moves on to trying to find the next proof of work. 
Now, proof of work, uh, mining and transactions exist um, together in cryptocurrencies um, to then produce the blockchain or are involved in the production of what's called the blockchain. So every transaction in a cryptocurrency network is published on the blockchain and the blockchain is made up of a series of, of blocks. Mining uh, interacts with the blockchain in that the way in which blocks are produced and transactions are validated is also through that mining process. So once the mining has taken place, the computer or the node that successfully found the proof of work will put all of the transactions that have taken place since the last block was formed into a block um, and put them on the blockchain as being verified. Um, also, as part of that process, that node will check that the Bitcoins are available to be spent. So if I was sending those Bitcoins to fill, the um, mining node that correctly solved the algorithm would be checking that I have the Bitcoins in my wallet to send to uh, Phil, for example. So there's the, the three key ways in which um, cryptocurrency are different to fiat currency, being that yeah, transactions are peer-to-peer -peer directly between uh, users using public-private key uh, cryptography. Uh, miners work in the background to uh, produce the cryptocurrency. And in the same time, they also collect together all the transactions and publish them on that blockchain. So yeah, I think that concludes my explanation of cryptocurrency. I don't know if Phil's got any more things to pick up on that. Yeah, so um, just following on then, I mean, in terms of a cryptocurrency, as Henry said, it's very much um, a form of digital cash. It's very much this idea that I can send money to another party and it's not having to go through a centralized authority, a single authority. In fact, it's a decentralized system. And so everyone who uh, operates the system, you know, it's, set, it's not owned by anyone. It's almost owned by everyone for everyone. Thank you both. That was really thorough explanation. And it certainly helped um, from my point of view. I'm not, um, not a cryptocurrency person. So this is a learning curve for me. Coming to you then, Phil, could you talk to us a little bit about why there's been an increase in popularity of various cryptocurrencies over the last couple of years? Absolutely. So um, again, just picking up on that point of what the, the cryptocurrencies are, this idea that blocks are mined. Um, so yeah. as a computer scientist, my perspective of this is, this is, this is code. This is code that's being operated across distributed systems globally and the algorithm that's driving this is really important actually when we're thinking about bitcoin in particular there are only 21 million coins available okay now that sounds like a lot but actually 90 percent of those coins have already been mined so when we think about that then we've got this this asset which is becoming more and more scarce over time i mean bitcoins you know if you trace it back it started around about 2008. So it's been, you know, it's been coming along for over a decade. But we are getting to the point, certainly with Bitcoin, where the supply is running out. And so it's classic supply and demand, where the supply is drying up, the demand is increasing because, well, it's a scarce, scarce currency that has an unknown future. And so that in itself is driving up the popularity. Other aspects to think about there as well, um, again, thinking about when it came out, um, around about 2008, around a similar time of the financial crash, um, this idea that there's no single authority, again, you know, people are thinking, well, you know, is this something that we can control for the people, by the people, rather than seeing a situation like that occur again? Another aspect to think about in terms of the popularity as well, as as Bitcoins have become more and more used, you know, in the early days, it was very much a hobbyist thing, um, as Henry's already discussed. You know, people would set up a, a machine to be able to mine Bitcoins because it was this new thing and they wanted to get involved and see what was happening. And as Bitcoins came, came to be more and more um, widespread um, and picking up again on this fact that it's essentially code, okay, there is code driving this. And as with all good technologies, you know, technology can be used for good and it can be used for bad, okay? And so we've got to remember things such as ransomware, okay? The drive of ransomware has come about 
largely by cryptocurrency. I won't say exclusively because, of course, ransomware has been a thing for many decades. You know, we think back to the 80s, there was ransomware where you had to dial a phone number, a premium rate phone number and pay that way. But cryptocurrencies have made it easier for ransomware to be successful by being able to say, right, okay, this computer has been infected with this um, malware. Files have been encrypted. If you wish to decrypt those files, you will need to pay a ransom. You will need to send two Bitcoins to this address. And so around the time of the WannaCry attack around 2017, there are a lot of companies panic buying and thinking, you know, how do I, how do I resolve this? I need to retrieve those files. And that in itself saw demand increase. Again, over time, you know, there's been other sorts of ransomware that have come about, other forms of illegal activities and trading as well, which have driven up this price. If we look at the dark web, for instance, there's a lot of exchange of illegal goods, which again are driving the price of cryptocurrencies. So there's a lot of things there. And I guess the other, the last point in terms of the popularity, you know, it's like any stock market, you know, it will fluctuate, it will increase, it will decrease. And when you've got representation from high profile characters in the media, such as Elon Musk, for instance, saying he's very in favor of cryptocurrencies, very supportive of them. Suddenly we see Twitter posts coming about, we see popularity rising because again, going back to that point with Bitcoin in particular, there's only 21 million of them available in the world. There are other cryptocurrencies becoming available because of that very reason of the supply drying up. Um, but that's the thing, you know, if you've got large media profiles driving this to say, well, I support it, I see a future in this, that in itself is going to push demand. Thanks, Phil. I suppose it's the same with everything, isn't it? If celebrities endorse things or, or, or generally support things, then it, it does increase popularity. Angelique, I'm just going to bring you in on that one. So I think um, just following up from what Phil said, it's, uh, it is indeed about supply and demand as well. But if we look at countries in Africa or Asia, for that matter, where there are in unstable governments, for example, like Henry and Phil has mentioned, this, this technology allows a person to control it directly without having the government or an individual controlling it. So actually it has increased its popularity, especially in countries where you have political instabilities, you have people who are constantly trying to attack um, banks and financial institutions. So it does give someone greater control over their finance as well. Um, but also, I think one of the major reasons now is COVID-19, so the pandemic. Um, you have people now sat at home working online thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to continue with my transactions? So cryptocurrency has in, like exploded the market and opportunities for businesses as well. And so young entrepreneurs are starting up businesses based on cryptocurrencies. And you will notice that African countries as well, there are a lot of startups who now base all their transactions on cryptocurrency. They accept um, compensation and remunerations through cryptocurrency. So there is that aspect as well. Um, and it is always a good alternative to traditional banking systems because I do feel that there are some people who do not truly trust the traditional banking system. So it has given them the option to say, well, okay, if I don't have any faith in the traditional banking system, let me look at cryptocurrency. And from all the blockchains and the technical aspect of it, it does provide some sort of security, I'd say, for any transactions that they are. But I mean, you have to be mindful of the risk as well. So I think in that way, the popularity has increased in terms of the pandemic and the ease of access of cryptocurrency, essentially. Thanks, Angelique. Henry, have you got something to add as well? My addition is brief on this because um, Phil and Angelique have covered this in detail. But just to um, pick up on uh, Angelique's point around the raises in sort of like the motivations for individuals getting involved in cryptocurrency. There was some research undertaken by Revealing Reality uh, on behalf of the Financial Conduct Authority in 2019, a couple of follow-up studies, but they generally found that the motivations for individuals or consumers in the UK to get involved in cryptocurrencies were a rejection of mainstream media, um, the desire to uh, get rich quick, and also the, or to not miss out on the next big thing as well, and also the reliance upon 
individual influences, so a disproportionate reliance upon one individual uh, person telling them what to do rather than looking at the broader uh, market to get a, a view of it, so I get a, a spread of opinion. So just that rejection of mainstream media is actually the same. People are seeing this as almost like a, a counterculture kind of finance in terms of uh, being able to invest in cryptocurrencies and outside of the, the uh, mainstream um, finance. So it really sort of rises that and also then leading on from that, that reliance upon individuals uh, or individual influencers rather than relying upon mainstream media really feeds into uh, the cryptocurrency hype, um, I would say, and that, and that get rich quick. The more that people are seeing cryptocurrency values increase um, and the general um, sort of hype around it will bring more and more players. My other last point on this is the um, the all of this hype is fed into by some of the mystery that shrouds some cryptocurrencies. Um, so Bitcoin in particular was um, proposed by the assumed anonymous uh, Satoshi Nakamoto in the initial white paper in 2008, I believe it was for, yeah, late 2008. And there's been lots of um, sort of conjecture and stories around who this Satoshi Nakamoto is, a couple of like false uh, reveals. Um, and this just feeds into that kind of, um, yeah, the, the atmosphere and the feeling around cryptocurrencies. Thanks all of you for your kind of explanation and thoughts there. And like I said, as someone who knows nothing about it, this is a bit of a um, an awakening. And, and certainly to me, it does seem like something that's got a bit of a mystique around it. So moving on then to think about the threats and then also the positive aspects and opportunities. Henry, maybe if we come to you, so what, what are the key threats or negative aspects surrounding cryptocurrency? Uh, Phil's mentioned one of the biggest ones already. Um, ransomware threats um, are a huge um, issue in cryptocurrency because you've, uh, or what's been created is a, a near anonymous payment mechanism um, for um, hackers and, and ransomware creators to extract money from their victims. So yeah, a huge threat is along the lines of ransomware. Um, other big threats that I would I would identify would be fraud as well, uh, particularly consumers are being defrauded by scams around cryptocurrencies. Um, and if a countless number of those have already um, been in existence, there's lots of frauds that exist either through false cryptocurrencies being created there was a Twitter uh, scam in 2000, it was in 2020, where uh, prominent Twitter accounts were hacked um, and people were advised to send their money to a particular Bitcoin address on the promise that double the Bitcoins would be returned to them. So we're seeing scams on that front. Um, it has appeal for uh, criminals um, in other activities as well, not just in ransomware attacks. Cryptocurrencies have become the uh, leading uh, currencies that are accepted on dark web marketplaces. The other threats, I suppose, are linked to our levels of oversight. So it's difficult for authorities to regulate cryptocurrencies. So therefore, there's instantly a threat there because individuals can trade with each other rather than through um, third parties. And the key uh, benefit of a, of a financial intermediary or third party from a regulatory perspective is that you can use them as your um, eyes and ears of the financial market, which is much harder to do in uh, in the cryptocurrency um, sphere. And this is where there's a threat that I'll then go on to talk about as an opportunity as well in cryptocurrencies, and that's the traceability. So cryptocurrencies can be traced, and we do see that in the Twitter um, scam of 2020, the perpetrator for that was identified relatively quickly through being able to track the transactions from the publicized Bitcoin address. But the traceability is not something that's um, a, a easily accessible traceability. And what I mean by that is that it takes uh, specialist knowledge and skill to be able to trace cryptocurrency transactions. And it also requires multiple techniques because um, users of cryptocurrency won't keep their cryptocurrency in only one denomination. They'll change it into other types of cryptocurrency. Thanks, Henry. Phil, have you got something to add around sort of threats and, and negative aspects? Yeah, absolutely. So just picking up again on a, a couple of things already mentioned by Henry, and we discussed earlier, the ransomware issue. It's it's easier now to embed a wallet ID within a piece of ransomware, distribute that and see whether payments are being made for that ransomware. Um, there's, a, there's a few things that play in there, because actually one of the things about having a blockchain is that it supports automation, because you can then 
programmatically see has someone made that payment or not, rather than being able, you know, traditionally checking a bank balance which is held by, you know, a central authority. So it's actually making it easier to make those kind of demands and make those kind of payments. Um, so the ransomware one is a, a massive issue, and of course, that in itself is creating a criminal marketplace. There's a lot in terms of ransomware as a service that people talk about now, where actually this is not just someone saying, I've created a piece of ransomware and I'm going to deploy it, but actually people offering on the black market their ransomware and saying, right, if you pay me you know, however many Bitcoins, I will provide you with the source code for deploying this. I will provide you with custom support for deploying this. And actually, even from the, the victim's perspective, in terms of these payments by Bitcoin, when someone receives a you know, ransomware notice and they say, well, I don't know how to get started with creating a Bitcoin wallet either. They have customer support lines saying, right, well, phone this number. We will help you. We will support you to create this uh, Bitcoin wallet to actually make your payment. So it really is spurring a, a whole business operation, really, as far as criminal gangs are uh, using this. The other one as well, just following up on Henry's points around dark markets, uh, dark web markets, very important area to focus on because, again, there's no central authority. The exchange of illegal materials, whether they be physical goods or whether they be online, you know, digital assets, so to speak, this is supporting that. It's anonymous currency. Other things to, to flag up then, attacks you might see are on actual wallets. Um, so I... I have a Bitcoin wallet. I have a username and password to log on to that. I might even have such things as two-factor authentication set up to protect my login to my online digital assets. But fundamentally, if an attacker was able to gain my login credentials for my wallet, they can empty my account and that's, that's the end of that. And who do, I, who do I go to to report that? There's no central authority. I can't run to the bank and say, oh, sorry, there's been fraudulent activity on my account. Can I get my money back? It, it doesn't work like that. So having to protect that wallet and the credentials for accessing that wallet are really, really important. Another threat which is important to recognize is around crypto jacking. Now, crypto jacking has become more and more common over the last few years, where We've talked about this idea of mining, and as mining has become more and more difficult, more and more resources required. So actually, in terms of malware attacks, what we've been seeing is a thing called crypto jacking. Now, crypto jacking is essentially a piece of malware which is installed on a target's machine, a victim's machine, and it will essentially contribute to the mining. So you might think of something such as a botnet. So a botnet in other forms is essentially a collection of machines that perform a single task. Historically, this has been used for things such as denial of service attacks. But if you now think we've got crypto jacking attacks where you've got a collection of machines that aren't owned by the organization, so these are being accessed illegally through this malware, and actually, you know, a target, a victim, could be myself, could be anyone, um, wouldn't actually know that their machine is being used as part of the crypto mining for some other illegal party. So you might find that you have availability attacks on your own service. And if we think about things such as Teams calls and Zoom calls, having that bandwidth, having that computational power to be able to drive this is really important. So having then something on your system which is hogging resources and making use of your CPU and your RAM for mining coins for some other party that you don't know about, that's a real concern. So we've got to be aware that crypto jacking is you know, on the rise. Criminals are trying to make use of innocent victims' machines in order to contribute towards this network of mining because that power need is so great. And the last point I'd like to just pick up on is about power usage. You see you know, people investing in multiple graphics cards, very complex, very large, high powerful systems to be able to run this. You'll have seen articles in the news about you know, big warehouses being set up, generating power consumption and the like, because they're running hundreds, possibly even thousands of machines. 
all trying to mine the next Bitcoin. The actual power usage across the globe, is, it literally is you know, the, the equivalent of some small countries. Um, it's, it's incredible. Now, how do we look after the planet in all of this as well? Because power consumption is, you know, is very important not on, the, um, on the climate change agenda. Thanks, Phil. I suppose that's something that maybe we don't think about when we think about the use of, um, of computers and things. It's actually literally just the sort of the very basic level of, um, of consumption and the sustainability issues surrounding that. Angelique, can I bring you in? Yeah, uh, just to add on as well, I think what we have to understand is where does the threat come from and how is it created? So a lot of um, users, like we've just explained, are attracted to the whole concept of cryptocurrency, but they don't actually have the education or the know-how how to operate these um, technology. And this is when it opens up the whole world for hackers and the ransomwares and everything that um, Phil and Henry has mentioned. But also one of the things is that in many African countries, banks and the government are very reluctant to regulate the use of cryptocurrency. So what you will notice is you will have users within these countries that are operating in cryptocurrency and they'll be faced with a scam or a hack, but they won't have anywhere to go because essentially the country is not going to protect them from this. And so they're stuck and there isn't anywhere that you can get your money back. So there's no insurance in that sense to get back your money. You've essentially just lost your money. It's gone. Um, but also not only that, but the information. So we're talking about traceability and there is a need for information to be shared across different countries. And I think this is very hard, especially now, because there's so many things going on right now. So the skills might not be there in that country to be able to identify the person who's involved in the hacking or the the origins of the hack as well. So I think this creates a bit of difficulty in terms of the actual use of cryptocurrency in a lot of jurisdictions in Africa. And later on, I will discuss more about this, but it will always remain a threat up until the point that we can firstly establish what exactly do we consider a financial crime in terms of the cryptocurrency aspect of it. And how do we actually prosecute people who do that? How do we get information and evidence that is of good quality that we can actually bring to courts and say, well, okay, these people are involved in an illegal activity. So how do we do that? And I think this is something that will continue to increase the threat up until the point that we can address these ambiguities and contentions in the area of regulations. Thank you, Angelique. And you've said you will talk about this in a little bit more detail, so we'll come to you in a little bit, Angelique, to talk more about that. Um, Henry, can we come back to you then, just to conversely think about the positive aspects and the opportunities that cryptocurrency presents? Yes, yeah, so I already spoke, I said one of the negatives was a double-edged sword in relation to the traceability. So that is a positive that is touted in relation to cryptocurrencies is the traceability of, of transactions. So let's take Bitcoin, for example, because it's probably... Uh, it's a relatively open cryptocurrency um, compared to um, others that exist. And in Bitcoin, I can easily view all of the transactions that take place um, on the blockchain. However, <laughs> I can view them, but I can only view them through public keys. Um, and your public key can be changed. And there are services that are provided so that every transaction you undertake, your public key changes. So that really makes tracing a lot more specialist in terms of a skill for somebody actually somebody somebody's been trace cryptocurrency so um yeah it's a positive but it's a it's not a full positive in terms of the opportunities i suppose a, a big a big um opportunity in relation to cryptocurrency could be the open access um of it and the fact that it or the the idea that it can limit financial exclusion because there are no bars for individuals to be able to use cryptocurrencies in the sense that you don't need to set up that there's no no one checks or can stop you setting up a bitcoin wallet um no one uh runs um customer due diligence on you if you if you use the right wallet as well so all of these things mean that it's very open and anyone can can use cryptocurrency outside of the the uh, traditional financial system so in in essence it can be an enabler for individuals or groups that weren't previously in the financial system or we could describe as financially literate to be able to access uh, finance 
The other positive I would say is that while I've discussed that fraud is a threat in cryptocurrencies, um, fraud in a cryptocurrency network is very difficult to commit. And what I mean by that is that the actual data in um, a, block, a blockchain is um, secure and um, irrefutable. If you undertake a transaction, then the cryptocurrency will move from one cryptocurrency wallet to the next because it's automated. The issue of double spending is is pretty much eradicated. So yeah, I can't spend my cryptocurrency twice fraudulently, which is a possibility with other um, with with traditional finance. I could, in theory, better spend my money twice, and there will be a fraud committed. So yeah, there's an absolute um, trust in in the network, which is a positive on that front. Thanks, Henry. Phil, have you got points to add? Yeah, sure. So again, just picking up on this idea of the blockchain, because the blockchain is really powerful to be able to have this immutable public ledger that everyone can access, everyone can see, um, and in being able to ensure that you know there is this shared, shared record of every transaction that has happened so that there can't be disputes about whether there is double spending and the like. I mean, the blockchain is essentially what's been able to drive this whole movement in the first place, that concept of having this distributed ledger. It's a very powerful concept. I suppose that brings me on to my main point around this of thinking about the technology, that, that idea of distribution of a public ledger has allowed us not only just to think about cryptocurrencies, but just how do we think about distributed code in general? And so if you look at other cryptocurrencies which have come to be, um, Bitcoin is obviously the one which is well known and is well talked about, but there are many other currencies coming about. And one in particular, which is very interesting, is one known as Ethereum, because the concept of Ethereum is not only about financial transactions, but actually about recognizing um, when a, a process has been performed by one party and having that validated by a second and having then the financial transaction take place. So this leads on to a concept known as smart contracts to be able to say, okay, has party A conducted some process, some action that they need to do on completion of that contract, that agreement, a payment will be made from, say, party B to party A in exchange for those goods. And this ties into that idea of automation, because if we've got code driving all of this, we've got essentially a code base that's being able to digitize this, being able to allow two parties to interact together. And this opens up a whole host of possibilities that can save us a lot of time thinking about chasing up of invoices between parties, thinking about supply chain management. So there's a lot in terms of the automation of processes and how organizations can have a, a digital agreement um, between them that is supported through the, the process of smart contracts. And that all is driven by this idea of the blockchain. Thanks, Phil. Um, one thing I've been thinking about as you've all been talking uh, in terms of opportunities and things is I suppose it's the growth in careers or the the the, the new kinds of, of job roles and opportunities. It, it, has there been a growth in opportunity in the job market in this sector? Absolutely. I mean, so just picking up on that point around Ethereum, um, Ethereum essentially allows you to run distributed software applications. Okay, so from a computer science perspective, well, we need we need graduates who are able to understand how to interact with the APIs that are used by Ethereum, by the blockchain, um, to be able to yeah, develop software for this. So in terms of software development, um, it, it opens up a whole host of new opportunities. And again, this is where you can think about things like financial technologies, fintech. You know, there is a massive movement in that area in terms of how do you understand both you know, the technology that's driving things, but actually the, you know, the business acumen that sits alongside that to understand, well, what does it mean to have supply chain management? And how do we have you know, forms of agreement between multiple parties? So the fintech area in particular is seeing a massive increase and a need to combine these two skill sets. Thanks, Phil. Angelique, I think you wanted to follow up. Yeah, I think, um, like you've mentioned, career opportunities 
it has been one of the positive aspects. And I think coming from a small country like Seychelles, I think having cryptocurrency gain um, prominence in countries like Seychelles, it has open options for young people to actually venture into um, tech development and software development, which is fantastic. And I think that goes globally anyway. Um, but also in terms of lawyers, being a lawyer myself, I think it does create a niche now in the market of saying, well, okay, how do we develop solid contracts that protect both parties? So it is like Phil said, it's, it's creating so many different opportunities for all aspects of key players within the cryptocurrency world that we essentially get an opportunity to venture into something completely new and create our own pathway for it, essentially. And I think in Africa, especially, technology is becoming something that is more and more um, gaining prominence as well. So I think it, it has opened up the career opportunities for young people around the world, but especially in Africa. Thanks, Angelique. It, it's fascinating. And, and all of you offering this kind of perspective on um, something that some people will know nothing about, and obviously others will, will know lots about. Um, from someone, yeah, as, as a layperson, if you like, it almost seems quite daunting. And one of the points you made at the very beginning about it not being regulated, you know, the same, if I go, to, if something happens to my personal account, I go to my bank and I say, and I'm, you know, essentially I've got some protection there, but um, it seems a little, a little frightening <laughs> not to have anything. Henry, did you want to make a point? Uh, just on the regulation, actually. So, um, yeah, it is broadly unregulated. In the US, uh, cryptocurrency service providers have been regulated for AML purposes by the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, since 2013. So they were quite early on it. Um, in the UK, we now have the Financial Conduct Authority um, should be ensuring uh, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing uh, measures are um, implemented by cryptocurrency service providers. And what I mean by that are those that run exchanges, those that run custodian wallet services. A uh, custodian wallet service is where your cryptocurrency is managed by um, the uh, service provider as opposed to you managing your keys or your um, cryptocurrency yourself. So different in the way in which someone can use it but those things are now regulated for AML purposes and what that means is is that you need to register with the financial conduct authority in the uk and you need to take um customer due diligence uh, measures so you need to take identity of your customers you need to have an understanding of what their business is and why they're using cryptocurrency and that then can build up um a, a data or a, a body of data about customers um, and therefore enable you to submit second part of the uh, AML provisions, which are suspicious activity reports, um, and they'll report that. And, and if you've got good customer due diligence, you're better positioned to submit uh, more detailed suspicious activity reports as a result. So those things are being brought in, but are in, in force now. However, there's still a limited amount of regulation of cryptocurrency activity. So there's AML provisions in place. But if you uh, Google Crypto Assets Financial Crime Authority, the, um, the page you get to will have three in bold uh, lines at the top of it on the FCA's website, and the bottom of which is that you should be prepared to lose all of your money. So it really does emphasize the point that as far as the Financial Conduct Authority is considered, cryptocurrency or crypto asset activity is not regulated, and it's very much at the user's own risk. Thanks, Henry. Angelique, I'll just take one more comment on this and then we'll move on. That's fine. Um, just obviously, um, there are a lot of countries um, in Africa and Seychelles, including, that have included cryptocurrency in their um, legislation and the regulations are actually coming out. It's just like we've mentioned before, one of the constraints is the ambiguity about the whole system in itself. And so creating a comprehensive regulation legislation is very hard, especially if we compare it to the Western world and Africa and South Asia and Asia in itself, it is very hard to have the same legislation for all these jurisdictions because there will always be a difference in the use of cryptocurrency, the people using it as well, the businesses as well. So I think it, it will take time, but there will be regulations at some point that will cater for the need to protect its users, I suppose. Thanks, Angelique. And actually, so moving us on, you've just talked about businesses. And the thing I wanted to talk to you guys about a little was um, in respect of a business, what are the emerging trends that, that a business would need to look out for in terms of cryptocurrency? And Henry, would you 
offer us a perspective there? I suppose my first caveat here is that cryptocurrency does appear to be a massive hype machine at times, um, particularly from someone looking at the outside in terms of what's going on in the media, you see stories about it. So it's it, it creates um, a difficult landscape for businesses, I suppose, in which in the way in which they want to engage with cryptocurrencies. I look at it maybe from two angles here. There's there's the trends for cryptocurrency service providers. And then there are the trends for traditional financial service providers who are moving into crypto, because I suppose there are two different uh, perspectives there. From those that are cryptocurrency service providers or CSPs, the trend would probably be more regulation is likely to be forthcoming. Um, the Financial Action Task Force have included uh, guidance on implementing a risk-based approach to uh, tackling AML and CTF in cryptocurrencies. It's likely that other um, international bodies uh, or trade bodies that recommend regulation um, of specific industries will start to create advice in relation to cryptocurrencies and the um, specific threats that they pose. So more regulation is, is on the horizon, um, you would I, I would expect. In relation to traditional financial institutions wanting to get involved in cryptocurrency, the threats for them or the trends look out for the future are being able to try and spot or, un or understand what are genuine uh, cryptocurrencies and which are, are scams or, or fraudulent um, activities because that's going to be something they want to avoid uh, being embroiled in. So it's important for non-cryptocurrency-based non, um, businesses to educate themselves around the threats and the landscape that uh, cryptocurrencies are currently exist within so as to avoid falling foul of, of regulation and also falling foul of, of scams. Um, but the general trend we're seeing um, in terms of a trend I'd say we could see is the move away from mining in the traditional sense because of the sheer power consumption that mining um, requires and potentially a move to uh, less power intensive mining mechanisms uh, might be something that we'd see in the future. Thanks, Henry. And Phil, have you got some points to add? Yeah, sure. So the other point I want to pick up on again is this issue of automation and smart contracts, because as for businesses in terms of emerging trends, this is something that I see really big you know, in terms of not just using it for you know, transaction between individual A to individual B, but actually being able to automate processes such as supply chain management, such as you know, issuing invoices and the like, and actually being able to have you know, that greater automation piece, having that all um, managed via this distributed ledger. Um, you know, supply chains can get very complex very quickly. Um, and so having that on a global scale in this immutable fashion, I think that is going to be something which will significantly change that process that obviously many, many organizations have to have to work with. And then the last one that I was going to pick up on is around NFTs. And NFTs are a concept known as non-fungible tokens. Now, what we mean by a non-fungible token is essentially a way of verifying that someone has ownership of an item. So it's essentially like a certificate of authenticity. And we're seeing a lot of news stories at the moment about people selling an NFT to say, I own a piece of artwork, a digital artwork or what have you, and actually being able to sell those for very high values of money. Okay, so we've seen talking 50,000 pounds or greater, for instance, for being able to purchase the certificate. And it's quite an interesting one because when you've got digital assets, you know, I receive a file, for instance, I can copy that file, I can send it on, and suddenly there's two versions of it. And if you've got digital assets in that way, how do you ensure which is the genuine article? And again, being able to have that supported by the blockchain process to be able to have provenance in that data, in that data asset, becomes really important when we want to know, well, what is the genuine record? What is the falsified record? How can I ensure that someone holds the genuine article? And so this concept of NFTs, to be able to have that certificate of authenticity around a data asset, again, is going to become very interesting over the next couple of years.
Thanks, Phil. I think Henry wants to um, come up on a point there. My point is the growth or the possible growth of central bank digital currencies. Um, and this is sort of, and, and I turn them as central bank digital currencies rather than central bank cryptocurrencies because there's going to be an element of centralization because a bank is going to be running them. Uh, but the Bank of England is looking at how it could implement a central bank digital currency. And these trends generally are in our move away from cash and towards um, yeah, non-physical um, money. So it might be that banks start to use, while not using full cryptocurrencies, it will be interesting to see how they develop their ledgers and their blockchains uh, to manage a central bank digital currency. Um, and the developments that they then uh, implement might be useful outside finance as well um, for using blockchain for other purposes. Thanks, Henry. It's interesting the point you've all made about how times have changed, I suppose. It's, it's that, that's all it is, but how you would have paid for parking, I suppose, with coins historically, and now you can't, you can't do that anymore. Again, it's been, I guess, progressed even more quickly because of the, um, the pandemic. But, um, and provenance as well. Again, I think if you look back, We've, there's always been an issue around provenance of, I don't know, paintings or, or whatever. But it's it's interesting how these issues then reoccur, but just in a different space. Absolutely, you've just echoed the point I was going to come in with because I think, you know, if if you'd have said to people three, four, five years ago, you know, you're going to have this concept of digital cash, you're not going to hold it, you're not going to own it, you know, you haven't, you can't touch it. Um, I think people would have would have been slightly concerned by that idea. But I mean, fundamentally, that's what we've all become used to. We're paying using cards and we check our mobile banking on our phones where we see what the number says. And that number is nothing more than a record that's held in a database somewhere. Now, whether that database be held by a central authority or whether that database be held by a decentralized collective, that, that is really the only discrepancy we're talking about here. So I think, you know, the pandemic has certainly accelerated the movement towards cryptocurrencies and digital currencies for that very reason, that actually cash you know, is potentially on the way out and we will just have this number in a, in a database that is stored somewhere in our connected world, really. Yeah, it's, it's quite a difference in, in perspective, I suppose. Um, so if we just move on now, I just wanted to bring Angelique in, in terms of bringing in her expertise and looking at things from maybe a bit more of a global or international perspective. So Angelique, can you just talk us through the response, specifically maybe from Africa, in terms of cryptocurrency? Yeah. Um, so you will notice that there are three groups of um, responses to cryptocurrency in Africa generally. So you have countries like Nigeria, um, that it has legalized cryptocurrency actually, and they're working towards giving some guidelines to crypto-based startups and digital currencies in general. So they are embracing the idea of cryptocurrency as something that is used in everyday lives by its people. Um, Kenya actually in January of this year is now experimenting with digital tax. And then you have South Africa as well, who actually has again, like Nigeria, experimenting with regulations to allow its people to use cryptocurrency. So generally speaking, there are countries that are embracing cryptocurrency in the way that the country is run. Um, but conversely, you have countries that have completely banned the use of cryptocurrencies. So financial institutions like banks, they tell you, do not use cryptocurrency. We cannot provide protection for you. So you cannot come back and fall onto them to say, well, look, I've lost my money. I need some money. They, they will not entertain this. And so countries like Namibia, they do not accept um, cryptocurrency and they don't promote the use of cryptocurrency in its country. Um, Zimbabwe as well. But you can imagine that because of the government and the instabilities within that country, it, it is really not something that they can venture into right now. And so I think that for them, it is rather let's ban cryptocurrency. We won't have to deal with the issues that might come or arise from the use of it. Um, but then you have countries that are completely silent or they're just indifferent to what cryptocurrency is. So they don't take an official stance on how they feel about it. So like I mentioned before, there are countries that actually have startups based on cryptocurrencies like Botswana. They have three locally based companies that use cryptocurrency um, for its transactions. 
And interestingly, there is a private medical clinic in Botswana that accepts cryptocurrency for its medical treatments. So alongside traditional currencies and payments, they also allow its customers and consumers to pay in cryptocurrency, which is quite new and quite innovative when you think about it going into the medical field and you know, the, the services that a, a medical clinic can offer and the payments that they now accept. So it has opened up um, what businesses now accept and how they conduct their, their services. But I think the, the reason behind this is such a varied um, response is because like um, Henry mentioned, infrastructure is very important for the use of crypt cryptocurrency and the ease as well. The whole point of cryptocurrency is the speed, the efficiency, the access to it. However, some parts of Africa don't actually have electricity. So actually, like Phil mentioned, a, a, a whole warehouse being dedicated just to produce power for transactions is not possible in, in some parts of Africa. And internet speeds as well is quite unreliable. Like I can tell you, Seychelles gets its internet um, access and services from mainland Africa through um, cables under the, under the water. And that means that our internet is very expensive. So actually, when you think about it, you're investing in, in cryptocurrency, but you're also paying for internet, your electricity use, which is not very, it's not something that is at the forefront of countries in Africa, like Seychelles as well, with the pandemic that is continuing as well. So I think another thing is, if you look at the people who use cryptocurrency, it is usually young people, the younger generation who are more tech savvy. And interestingly, Africa doesn't have that big of a youth population. So actually it, it is a matter of the older generation now venturing into learning how to use cryptocurrency. And that will always be met with reluctance because technology in itself is very daunting for somebody to just now come and learn about blockchains and mining and all these overwhelming terms essentially. And so there is that aspect as well. And finally, amongst many other reasons as well, is the political turmoil and civil unrest that continues to plague um, African nations as well. You have to imagine that there are countries and areas that are still facing political unrest. People are more worried about where are they going to stay, how are they going to survive and all of that. So genuinely, they do not have the time to even think about cryptocurrency. And this is why some countries do not even support the idea of cryptocurrency. And in terms of now looking at the future, I will not say that cryptocurrency will not be implemented in these countries that have banned it. Potentially, if things do get better and COVID-19 kind of calms down, I think that these countries that have banned or have not taken an official stance will look towards legalizing and regulating cryptocurrencies in their country because like Phil and Henry mentioned, there are so many opportunities that lie with using cryptocurrencies and Africa being one of the countries that could use technological developments. I think this is something that will be looked at coming in the coming years. Henry? I'm going to pick up on Angelique's point, and I think it's a good observation in relation to those three groups. And you can group them into, yeah, ban, regulate, or ignore, I suppose, are the, are the three options that you have. Um, and I can talk of examples from outside of Africa. You can look at China, look at the US, and then look at maybe the UK until uh, January 2020. It took a similar approach, and that each of those could probably fall into one of those categories. So... China more recently has now banned, uh, well, they over the course of um, the last three or four months have been banning nearly all cryptocurrency activity. So it started with um, prohibiting mining taking place in China. And up to that point, China was the leading uh, location for mining to take place due to cheap electricity. You could set up your warehouses of processors um, and mine your Bitcoin in China quite, quite well. But they, they banned that and it forced it out of the country. Um, and then since then, they've also now banned all cryptocurrency transactions. So any transactions in cryptocurrency are, are deemed to be illegal. And that kind of summarizes the main way in which you can address cryptocurrency 
in a in a complete fashion, I suppose, is, is by banning it. Um, what you've probably done in, in essence is put it underground. Um, so you'll then find that cryptocurrency becomes illegal in itself and it forces it into um, darker uh, areas for, for um, users to lurk on the in the dark web in particular. Um, and you'll find users using um, VPNs to get around ge uh, geographical restrictions. But that is the crux of it, there's the banning option. The regulating option is one that um, you need to have the infrastructure to regulate um, and it creates, and then that's what, that's why banning is so much more appealing, I, I could argue, is that banning is relatively simple in that you make it illegal um, and you do what you can to close down a high profile cryptocurrency activity in your country. Regulating is much more difficult because your approach needs to be more nuanced and it costs more money to try and um, in either um, create regulators or give the role to your existing regulatory authorities. So, yeah, regulating isn't the easiest route to take. Um, and I suppose then the, the, the easiest route is the ignoring it one. But then you've got the issue that the longer you ignore it for, if it grows in your country, it becomes too important for you to ignore it and you have to have to regulate it in some way, shape or form. Um, so yeah, just observations about Angelique's viewpoints. The other thing I'd say is the is the issue of using cryptocurrency as, as cash at the moment as well is a difficult one. So particularly if I was paying for surgery, um, I would be concerned about using cryptocurrency because I would pay today in cryptocurrency, but I'd then know tomorrow that my uh, my surgery suddenly cost me a lot more money than it did the day before due to those fluctuations in value. That is reducing. Um, but the fluctuations are still there. I mean, there's there's a May 22nd uh, is known as Bitcoin Pizza Day um, because it commemorates the anniversary of the uh, first Bitcoin uh, uh, transaction, which was that 10,000 Bitcoins were used to buy two pizzas. Um, and it then looks at how I mean, the, the, the point of Pizza Day is to look back and see then how much those pizzas are worth in today's money. And in 2021, uh, the two pizzas were worth uh, $630 million. So they're quite significant pizzas that have been purchased. Now, this is a very extreme example because obviously they've jumped up and down in value quite a lot since then. And those values have, have um, steadied somewhat, but it is an issue in terms of the way in which people use cryptocurrencies isn't necessarily as a cash, it's more as an investment tool um, instead. Um, so, and a threat, I guess, is that lots of people who are outside the traditional financial system and maybe haven't learnt or, or aren't educated in finance are potentially taking risks with significant amounts of money using cryptocurrency as that investment tool. Um, and it doesn't really seem to be replacing cash. Thanks, Henry. So. I suppose we're going to we're going to call this a new financial era then. So, Angelique, just thinking about this from an international perspective, what should policymakers be looking at when drafting legislation to protect its people from financial crime? Um, I think uh, with this question, it can apply to all crimes actually, because there is always legislations that need to be amended as the years continue. Because criminals get smarter, they get more innovative with the ways that they actually hack. Um, like Phil has mentioned, ransomware as well. So there will always be risks. And so I think in terms of the African continent in itself, it's the communication between these countries when and if there is an incident of hacking. It's that transfer of information to be able to establish where exactly the hack has happened, how it has happened and all the nitty gritty and compiling a good piece of evidence to be able to bring to court, to be able to, you know, bring these people to justice. So obviously the sharing of domestic information, not only on in Africa, but internationally and globally as well is very important because we could have somebody sitting in England right now who's probably hacking my computer at the moment in Seychelles. So then how do we get the information about the operations in England if I'm based in Seychelles? It's, it's, it's that, that communication that needs to be set up globally to ensure that we can actually legislate financial crimes in the sphere of cryptocurrency. But not only that, um, Henry mentioned about reforming suspicious activity reporting. And actually, it is in that, that bit that we have to rely on that sometimes the information that is gained is actually quite poor in quality. So it's you cannot use it to go forward in court and bring somebody to justice. So it's actually 
creating a standard for that as well. What are we looking for and what is the standard that we need to meet when we come up with these information to bring to court, as well as streamlining the way that we consider cryptocurrency. I had mentioned that obviously we're in different jurisdictions currently right now. And so having one main definition of cryptocurrency or financial crimes in the aspect of cryptocurrency is very difficult because the transactions, yes, technically speaking, are the same, but the way that the transactions are done, if it is something very different in Africa, it could be different in, in England. How do we bring all of this under one umbrella is, is something that needs to be considered. And yet another thing is African countries and Asian countries have usually adopted regulations and legislations from the Western part of the world. And so I think it's important that we come up with our own framework of regulations and legislations to be able to address the issues within the continent and also partner that with globally speaking, what all the regulations are. I think it's a very difficult question to answer now. I think it would have to be relooked at in the coming years because we've mentioned that there will be more and more demand for cryptocurrencies. It's going to increase. So more and more things will change and legislation needs to be wide enough to capture this, but also narrow enough to help the victims essentially when they bring such claims to court essentially. So I think what to look at is to be open, um, adapt to changes in cryptocurrency and the landscape of cryptocurrency. That's very important, but also factor in the jurisdiction in which this legislation is being implemented is very important as well. Thanks, Angelique. Henry, have you got, I don't know, any any thoughts on the legislation in terms of, of the UK? Um, so in terms of the UK, um, the legislation is, is limited. So all we've had in terms of directly relating to cryptocurrencies is an amendment to the 2017 money laundering regulations. Uh, that amendment implemented the fifth uh, anti-money laundering directive from the EU. So the UK is also, um, its legislation has broadly been um, sort of, it's been required to regulate cryptocurrency rather than doing it off its own back. I think Angie's point about um, this sort of the, the West sort of telling uh, the rest of the world how to regulate has been um, a, a kind of a prevalent issue for a number of years. So the Financial Action Task Force is, is the leading international body in relation to setting anti-money laundering and, and counter-terrorist finance um, uh, recommendations or, or legislation. So it has 40 recommendations, which are kind of model uh, legislation. And lots of countries sort of take them and just implement them uh, as um, as written because that is often seen as the easiest way to comply with the AML um, and CTF recommendations. But that doesn't always fit. And as Angelique said, uh, countries across Africa transact in different ways. Um, they have different, well, they have nuanced financial systems that they that they're culturally. Um, adapted to suit the culture that they're within people transact in different ways uh, lots of countries may um, or countries may focus on mobile transactions countries may use um, informal value transfer systems as well which are often sort of identified I suppose is the best way to describe them as far as the western approaches because they're so outside of our regulatory um, sphere and they look like a threat a bit like cryptocurrencies are so there is this issue that we find that um, there's a there's a dictating from the West on uh, other countries in terms of how they should regulate, and it doesn't really work. Um, and you could argue that the that we've we should have learnt our lesson from this because as money laundering legislation has been developing in the EU, the first EU directive was pretty much useless because it failed to consider that different countries have different standards even within the eu so it wasn't it was no use because the actual directive was implemented in different ways across the uh, eu block and therefore it didn't really work and we've got to a point now where with the fifth anti-money laundering directive and um, soon to be a sixth one um there's a more and more common approach to money laundering across the eu block so it's it, 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 you need to work with each country and the nuances of their financial system in order to, um, yeah, to for the uh, AML legislation to actually work. Thanks, Henry, for just giving us that, that overview there. 
this has been so fascinating. I'm really intrigued. And I, you know, I think initially I thought I could go home and start mining, but um, it turns out I need a warehouse and loads of power. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, but, you know, some of the issues that you guys have raised and the fact that, you know, there's sustainability to think about, there's internet access, there's accessibility, and there's the international perspective. So it's obviously, it's not just, it's not just a UK matter, but um, thank you all so much for your time this morning. It's been really, really fascinating and, and lovely to speak to you all. And um, we'll, any sort of queries or questions that come through um, once people have maybe had a listen, if you wouldn't mind, we'll sort of maybe forward on to you. But once again, thanks. Very nice and very kind of you all to join us today. Thank you for being part of our Future Impact podcast series. We hope you enjoyed listening and have taken something away from this episode. If you'd like to learn more about any of the topics discussed or have an idea or a topic to include in future episodes, please do email us for further information using bbec at uwe.ac.uk.